Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today, as always, we have another amazing guest on our show. She is a former Olympic bobsledder, a businesswoman, and a philanthropist. Alicia Rizling, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. So kind of just give us a little segue into what it was like basically preparing to be an Olympian. So what happened before on your journey to actually becoming an Olympic athlete? Oh, I think uh, that's not a, a short answer. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a multi-stage, multi-step. Um, it's a journey. It's a journey. It's an experience. And I think that's what's the most special part of becoming an Olympian is, is those who really kind of relish the the journey and embrace it and and take it as a part of the joyful experience as much as it is a grind as much as it requires so much sacrifice and everything um it's it's definitely been a pretty special experience that that got me to one of the biggest goals i ever set for myself right well on your site there and i remember reading this and being blown away by it though on, on this journey is that in grade five, you set a goal of having an athletic scholarship to pay for your university education way back in grade five. So you were kind of destined or on this path already. And then in university there, grade 12, you were offered scholarships in four different sports through various Canadian and US colleges. And you settled on playing basketball, correct? I actually went to U of A to play basketball and do track and field. They gave me a duel. Nice. And that's why I ultimately chose to stay home as much as I was dying to get away. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, so you were still drawn to being a multi-sport athlete, correct? And I could never choose. I didn't know. I really didn't know what my favorite sport was. And I didn't know which sport I had the most potential in. Like it literally could have gone anyway. I just, I love them all. Um, and I love just, ultimately I chose U of A because of the basketball team. Um, I went, uh, they, the girls brought me out and I just fell in love with the players. And I was like, these are the people I want to hang out with for the next five years of my life. Nice. What sort of got you involved in sports though, to begin with? Like what sort of feeling or accomplishments uh, did you have leading up to all of this? I come from a very athletic family. Um, my a family full of hockey players and it was non-negotiable. Like we were in <laughs> sports. So I was on skates from the time I was two years old. Um, I was playing as a multi-sport athlete by the time I was four. When I was four years old, I was playing baseball on Tuesdays and Thursdays and soccer on, on Monday and Wednesday. So uh, I, I was a multi-sport athlete since I was young because I always wanted to have something to do and I just loved playing. Nice. So during all this though, um, I remember us talking earlier and, uh, you had mentioned though, that in university you had a pretty severe injury and, uh, for a little while there you weren't an athlete. Um, can you kind of walk us through what, what happened during that period? Yeah. I mean, I never actually had to, uh, miss really 
I missed half a season one year. Um, I, I broke my collarbone in my second year of university and, um, I ended up having to get surgery after my first year, uh, on my shins from compartment syndrome. So that was an overuse injury. And it was a matter of my coaches just said, you know what, like you have to choose, you can't continue to do both sports. Your body can't handle it. Um, in particular, our basketball team was really good. So our season was significantly extended because we went all the way to the national final and uh, we really didn't lose a lot of people that year too. So we knew we were going to be good for a while. So um, just having that camaraderie and being part of that team, there was no way it was going to drop basketball. So track had to go. So I actually never even got to compete in like a real meet as much as I, I did show up and do a couple practices and switch to the outdoor season, like literally the day uh, that, that basketball ended. Um, we got back from nationals. I was out in the field doing jumping practice. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I had to battle back through a couple injuries throughout that and through the surgery, but, uh, luckily enough, I still like never had to take a year off or anything. Okay. During that time though, what was kind of happening? Like, did you kind of go into a little bit of funk with depression as well around the, the injury and kind of what toll it took on you? No, I think what you're alluding to is actually the year I I graduated. And the year I graduated, I I mean, I finished the season with seven stress fractures in my shins that I played 39 minutes a night on. And, and uh, you know, it was a grind of a season. We lost seven. I saw seven ACLs go that year. Um, not just on our team. We had four. Four in one year on a team that you're supposed to be w- really, really good on. And we ended up losing two of our starters and and two of our, our first off the bench. So it really just kind of changed what our team's destiny was. And um, the year after, I took a year off to apply to a graduate school that I didn't get into. And that's really where I was struggling with this post-sport identity. I was not in a good place. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. I, I didn't have any goals to strive to achieve. And, um, I really was lacking in, in who my identity was. And that's where I really started to struggle with my mental health. Wow. I've heard that constantly from so many athletes kind of when their, their sport is up or when they've, they've been injured. And that's one of the reasons I asked it, but also like my, my own self in, in sport was once I was injured and knew my rugby career was over, was this once again, kind of struggling with that, that identity post being competitive in, in a sport. And it really, really drains on you. But at the same time, it kind of sets you up for other things. And uh, with yourself there, um, kind of this transition period, do you feel like that adversity and kind of that self-reflection that's forced upon you uh, led you into, into the career you had with bobsled then? I did. And I think it set me up really well for bobsled because I was able to acknowledge that, yes, I was going to redefine myself as a different type of athlete this time. Um, But going through this whole bobsled career of 10 years, I think I spent the last six of those years actually preparing myself for life after sport. So I would be ready this time when sport ended in case it ended earlier than I anticipated it to um, and how, and how I, on earth were you doing that as you're going through this? I, I'm, I'm really <laughs> curious on that one. <laughs> so the COC, the Canadian Olympic Committee, has a pretty incredible program called Game Plan, and it is a series of 
workshops and events and scholarships and just a plethora of, of tools that athletes have access to that is going to help set themselves up for life after sport. And that's kind of the thing that I, I really engaged in. I didn't just dip my toe in. I went to all the workshops I did all the, I took advantage of every learning opportunity. I went back to school. I utilized one of their scholarships to get a post-grad certificate in business. Um, I, I really just, uh, embraced what life after sport and started to look at really look at what my life after sport was going to look like since it was so different than I originally imagined it was going to be. Oh, fascinating. That, that, that's amazing that even, even when you're gearing up for that huge competition and the Olympics, that uh, uh, there is kind of that end perspective with it as well. Um, walk us through, though, how you went from basically kind of being out of sport for a little while there, uh, hanging around the wrong crowd, and then deciding, okay, I'm going to launch myself into bobsled. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, in this year off that I took, I was working in an, I was working a couple different jobs. I was working as a, a researcher because I was trying, I was trying to get into med school. Um, okay. and I was also working at a nightclub. So I primarily was working pretty late at night. Like I'd be working until two, three, four o'clock in the morning. Right, um, yes. so I kind of had this lifestyle where I would casually roll out of bed, you know, noon. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't start work until seven. So I, uh, I, I was actually having another day where I was in a mood and I think I woke up around noon and I came downstairs and turned on the TV and it was the opening ceremonies of the London Olympic games. And I, noon in Edmonton is, uh, 7 PM in, in London, England. And they were just getting started in the beginning of the ceremonies. It's the parade of athletes and the athletes march through and it's a pretty big piece. And I remember watching the opening ceremonies and just looking at those athletes faces when the Canadians walked in and they all had this sense of pride on their face, this like pure ecstatic joy that I was missing from my life and had been missing for the last uh, we'll call it, it was 14 months because <laughs> I know that because I had not been in a gym in 14 months. Um, and uh, I I just missed that feeling so much and I wanted to feel like that, but even more than I had before. And being an athlete my whole life, I my goal was always a scholarship. So when you think of a scholarship, it's, it's you know, you play your four or five years, uh, depending which country you go to. And and then that's it. And I never even fathomed the Olympics, to be honest. I wasn't, I was a decent basketball player. I was very defensive, but I couldn't hit a three point shot to save my life. So <laughs> there was no Olympics on the horizon in basketball for me. Um, <laughs> so I, I had heard about that crazy sport called bobsled. They actually had recruited some of my former track and field teammates. And I was kind of, okay. um, intrigued by, by why they were recruiting the girls that they were recruiting because I was like, I used to beat her in races. I was lifting more than every single one of them in the gym. So I, I had previously actually inquired about bobsled in like my third year of university. But then when they told me I would have to drop my scholarship and I'd have to move to Calgary and I'd have to kind of live this like travel nomad life, I, I was absolutely not because I, I was not willing to forego that scholarship. My, my mother would murder me. Um, education was also very, very important in my household. 
so I, uh, but it always had planted that seed and, and watching those opening ceremonies, I knew bobsled was a sport that, you know, at 22 years old, if I just started, I wouldn't be behind the game. So I decided that, <coughs> excuse me, right then and there, while I was, uh, watching those opening ceremonies, I, I called my mom in the room and I'll never forget this because she preaches education and I was like, mom, what are you, what would you say if I told you I wasn't going to go upgrade this year or continue to try to apply to med and, and, uh, or do a master's, I, I might try and be an athlete again so I can go to the Olympics. And I expected her to laugh and she just looked at me and she's like, I've been waiting for you to say that for years. And it blew no my way. mind. I'm like, wow. yeah, I was like, what? Like, <laughs> like seriously? Um, and that was kind of like the awakening I needed. It was like, here I am, you know, I still feel like I still have something to give to sport and I, I haven't really accomplished everything that I was destined to athletically yet. Um, so I sent an email down to Calgary right away and I just said, you know, how do I even get involved from the bottom? Because I was no longer this athlete that was being recruited or, or considered because again, I hadn't been in a gym in 14 months. And, um, so I sent an email down and they said, you know, we have an ID camp in two weeks, come on out, drove down to Calgary two weeks later, did not do great. Um, but kind of showed some potential and then got invited back to the Alberta tryouts, uh, six weeks later, came home, put myself through two days and, and just squeaked on that team and the rest is history. Wow. So you were able to go with 14 months off and mm -hmm. show up at, at a camp and impress some people and get invited back. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it that. Like, I'll be very honest. Like if I look back at where I finished my career versus the numbers I put up, I still have the numbers that I put up in that they were laughable. Like right now it's like, and that's why even when I take an approach and some of the things I'm trying to do in getting bobsled started right now is and in people's first camps, we can't laugh at them. Like we can't mm -hmm. just immediately look the other way because we don't know the circumstances. We don't know their training age. We don't know. And especially in my case, like how hard I was willing to work. Um, I think that's to the kind of reach that You don't know potential. that grit behind somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so just the fact that I kind of showed I was reasonable and no, me personally knowing where I was and where I had been before, I knew I could, I could really change those numbers. So um, that's why I, and I, I did make some, some crazy big strides and it didn't happen in the first year either. It actually took me two years to, to make a significant change in, in my ability as an athlete, uh, a bobsled athlete. But, um, yeah, like I said, I just squeaked on that team and yeah. it, 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 <laughs> but I'm really glad I did because at least it opened the door for me to, to give it a try and, and see if I liked it first. And then before I really committed, moved to Calgary and, and put everything I had into it. Right. And you really did put everything you, you had into everything. it. Uh, and everything. And then some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now walk us through this. So you're squeaking through and then you're showing basically your, your fitness, your athletic potential and building that as you go. But what was the first trip down that track like? 
Hmm. So this this whole like tryouts and stuff happened without me ever going down the track. This is in the ice house in Calgary, an indoor facility. It mimics the start ramp. Um, so it's a it's a good good intro to bobsled for sure. Um, and then the first time I went down the track, I went down with a brand new pilot. Uh, I was in the back seat, and I'm pretty sure we hit every single wall on the way down. And I got to the bottom, and there was a volunteer down there. And he, he was kind of helping us because oftentimes what happens is when people go down the first time, they're very disoriented at the bottom. Um, <laughs> you know, you get the motion sickness. It's, it's like going on a crazy high-speed roller coaster, and especially when you're bouncing off walls going 130 kilometers an hour. So um, I so ripped off my helmet. this is your first trip down and first trip down. speeds of over 100. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I think because we hit so many walls, we were probably only going about 115. But uh, <laughs> I, I got to the bottom and, and ripped my helmet off, and, and I had the biggest smile on my face. And, and this volunteer looks at me, and he's laughing because – when when the bobsled goes down the track and it hits a wall, it sounds like a shotgun. Like it's it's quite loud. Um, right. So any bystanders that are anywhere around the track vicinity, they can they can hear how the run is going. Right. Like if it's quiet, you know it's a beautiful run. But if it's bang bang, you can hear it the whole way down. Um, so he, he yeah, looked these, at me. These aren't like, gentle little bumps into the No, wall like, like full bang. Hurt, yeah. Don't they? Oh, they hurt. Yeah. But I think I would just had so much adrenaline. Nothing could hurt me that day. And he looked at me <laughs> right, and, yeah. and he just looked and he's like, if you thought that run was fun, this is the right sport for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something's wrong with you, but you're in the right sport. <laughs> So you're taking this adrenaline rush and how does that, that transfer into then eventually going to the Olympics? Uh, what was kind of the, the path from there? Uh, so that first year I, I had to learn everything. I knew nothing about bobsled. I didn't know how you won a race. I didn't know how the sleds worked. I didn't know. I, I didn't even know that women only competed in the two man. I thought everyone just did four men and right. turns out it's women only do two men, men do two men and four men. So uh, these are all things I learned like as I'm already trying out for the team. <laughs> and then I had to learn how you practice. I had to learn how you take care of the sled. I had to learn that equipment is interchangeable. Um, but the biggest lesson I learned that year that was that, the pilot is responsible for the sled and the pilot is also the one who qualifies the sled for the Olympics or for any race for world cup, whatever it may be. If the pilot is sick or injured, the sled doesn't go down the track. If right. the brakeman is sick or injured, we just sub someone else in. It's not a, like, oh. and, um, this, this year was the 2012, 2013 season. So the year prior to the Sochi Olympics and heading into the following summer, going into the, the Olympic year, um, I watched, I started obviously being a bobsled fan and, and paying more attention. And I watched the girls who had clearly been around for years and the next season, somebody else came in who took their spot after three years of training hard and grinding and doing all the grunt work and they lose their spot by a hundredth of a second, yeah. um, just because somebody's that much faster and a hundredth of a second. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I definitely 
realize that if this was going to be my my path and my destiny and I I wanted to become an Olympian which which it really was I loved the sport every day I did it I fell in love with it a little bit more um I was going to have to learn how to drive because I was never going to be the fastest or most most powerful girl on the back seat like there I I'm a good athlete I'm an all-around good athlete but I'm never yes. great at anything um and I I figured I, I was going to take control and try and, and outline this destiny. Um, I needed to do it in a way that I was kind of more in control in the driver's seat, if you will. So yes. that was when I realized the next year that I was going to have to learn how to pilot the sled. Okay. So now you're in charge of reacting this 130 kilometer sled going down this bumpy track and go into basically developing that feel and reaction time behind being a pilot then. Yeah. I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, yeah, I, my first, most pilots only get in a handful of crashes their, their entire careers. And like I was in six crashes right off the get go. And yeah, I, I did not have a feel for it. I was uh, very high strung. I had a hard time managing my adrenaline and, and I, I was very um, kind of mechanical with my movements. I didn't quite understand how to harness the pressure um, for a long time. And, but I stuck with it. And I think that's the thing that kind of impressed people the most because I, I was always black and blue. I had first degree whiplash. I was <laughs> like just sore all the time and people are like why the hell are you still doing this you suck and uh i kept telling myself you know i really think that i i do have that potential like i i'm gonna get it yes. i just haven't got it yet because there would be like little moments where i would do something and something would click it was just the tracks 1.5 kilometers long and you know when you, when you there's a lot that leaves a lot of room than a lot of mistakes to make And one of the things, one of the goals I set for myself actually was that I was never going to make the same mistake twice. So I always chose to, to evaluate what happened when I made a major mistake and learn from it and learn how to adjust it and eventually stop running out of mistakes to make. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) the grit was obviously there. It was there beforehand. Uh, Walk us through though, how you learned to manage the emotions, the adrenaline rush and then getting that into that smooth control over, over something. Uh, how did that build develop with you? Um, to be honest, it, it, it was, it was a gritty move. It was just repetition. I just, no matter what happened, no Mm -hmm. matter how much it hurt, I got back up and I went again. Like there was no, I didn't even think twice. Like I would just get back up and go again. And, um, I had a a coach in my second year as a pilot that was pushing us probably to go even harder than we should. Like it would be like we were doing six, seven, eight runs a day. Our nervous systems were completely shot and she'd be like, again. And, and, you know, (laughs) I hated her at the time, but I, I did ultimately know at the end of the day, it was going to make me a better pilot because, you know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to perfect to your craft and, when you right. only get to go through each corner for a couple seconds at a time, I'm literally never going to get to 10,000 hours. <laughs> um, so it, it, I was like, well, at least the more times I go through it, the closer I'll get to that, 
where I actually have a better understanding. Yeah. Now, as you develop this better reaction, did you notice other kind of feelings and sensations happen as you, you got better with it? Oh, a hundred percent. Like it, it became, it, everything went from a mechanical, uh, cognitive decision to a more reactionary, um, feeling like I, 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 I started driving with my hands instead of my brain. Um, I, in my, as one of my coaches would like to say, you drive with your seat. Um, and that feeling that you get when you're under those G forces and it became more about not directing the sled, but guiding it while under pressure. And it took years. It really did take years. But um, I felt like kind of as I started to understand and was able to dictate in in like a a meeting afterwards about what I thought happened and what we were seeing happening in a video. Um, And then that helped me to kind of understand and register, especially as my heart rate, I was able to slow it down. and, And, you know, that repetition, like you start getting less and less scared of going down the track. Um, you're able to kind of better understand and and remember what happened. And a big part of that too is after every run, when you're getting to the bottom, not immediately like laughing and just moving on, but actually taking a second to to digest what just happened, to to register what decisions were made as you go down the track. Because I think a lot of times when we got to the bottom, you you would you kind of black out, like you don't really know what happened, and then it comes back to you. So you take the minute of just silence to evaluate. Um, how it run, what went well, what didn't. And, right. uh, and, and uh, I did take, a, when I was a young athlete, I took a lot, I did a lot of journaling as well. Awesome. Yeah, there's got to be a period right after all that stimulation where your system's just a little overwhelmed and needs to recover first. And uh, yeah, you mentioned so many things that as <laughs> being in neuroscience that a geek out about it, and the repetition is what builds these pathways. And Really, the brain is about reaction time. And as you build it, then the brain is firing and more efficient. And we need that for absolutely every skill we do. And, uh, of course, Olympic athletes are are at kind of that pinnacle of, of that brain and nervous system development because it is these millisecond reactions to to something that's happening at, as you said, uh, 130 kilometers an hour with G-forces hitting you. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, That is a well-developed nervous system, and it's that repetition <laughs> and grit that gets you there. Now, as you got better in the sport, what were kind of the, the highs that you hit then? Uh, well, it's interesting you word it like that because I, I like to explain to people that coming from a team sport background and – the highs and lows of bobsled are really what sucked me in because if you, if you, and I know a lot of listeners aren't going to be able to see it, but you know, the typical like waves that you picture your hand outside a window when you're driving a truck and, and you're kind of riding the air and yes, in, in any other sport that I've played, um, the, the waves that you create are, I mean, hitting a game winning shot in, in basketball, like in your team rushes to you and it's a buzzer beater and you're so excited and that's awesome versus the opposite. When a team hits a game winning shot uh, at a buzzer beater and you're just devastated because it was like you made the mistake and those are highs and lows. 
Now, if you multiply those by 10, that's what the highs are in, in bobsled. When you have a clean, incredible run and you get down to the bottom of the track and you've set a personal best and you know that you executed as well as you could and you were completely in that zone, like there and that wind is just like whistling over your head and you know you're killing it, like that, the high in bobsled is is 10 times higher than than any high that I've had in any other sport that I've played, including hitting those big shots or, or those big, big game moments that you remember for the rest of your life. Um, but the lows are 10 times lower when, <laughs> when you are going into a corner and you're on the right hand side of a left hand turning corner and, and it's, <laughs> and you know that you're in trouble before you're even in trouble and you're doing everything that you can to try and save it. And, you still violently flip over and you know you can hear your brakeman screaming in the back getting tossed around and ice burn as you're going 147 kilometers an hour upside down. It's There's nothing lower than that either. <laughs> so like, it's like you're constantly chasing those, those extreme highs, but you can't get them without the extreme lows either. So right. I think that's, that's – uh, what's so enticing about the sport for me. That is absolutely amazing. Now you did have a couple of uh, teammates there, like you and uh, Cynthia Appia uh, got bronze in the, the world cup leading to Pyeongchang uh, Olympics. Yes. And then mm-hmm. with, with Heather Moise as well. Uh, what was it like uh, with, with the teammates and the interactions you had then? Um, I was really lucky. It's interesting being in bobsled because so many of our, our athlete recruitment comes from individual sports. Like it from, from on the women's side, we primarily recruit from, um, track and field and Heather was a rugby player though as well. Um, so it, for me having basically primarily a team sport background, um, I felt like I approached having teammates a lot different than some of my other teammates, uh, mm-hmm. might have. Um, bobsled's a really weird sport dynamic in that brakemen are always uh, pitted against each other because they're always fighting to be the number one brakeman on the number one sled. Um, but sometimes they're not, and they might be in with a different pilot who was last week, their competitor. Um, and I was lucky enough. I felt like I had some really great relationships with, with some of my teammates. Um, Heather and I were together for the shortest amount of time and we came sixth at the Olympics, which was Heather's worst finish because she has two gold medals in fourth place. Um, and, uh, uh, but she said in general, the, this last Olympics was the most fun for her because her and I just clicked. We were fast friends. We were, we just, we were on the same page. We just were the same type of type of personality. And we just, we were there to do business and to work, but we also knew how to kind of break it up by still having a lot of fun. Um, and Sin and I bonded over our love of sport. She works for, for the Jays and we had some, some hilarious like dance parties and Sin's a huge, <laughs> uh, uh, board game player. So, um, like just for me, it was just about finding common ground with all my teammates, regardless of whether or not we're racing together. Um, it was really important to me to have a great relationship with every girl on that team, because even if we weren't racing together week in, week out, we still had to go to all the same places. We had to travel in the same hotels, be in the same cars, be on the same planes. And, uh, I just find in general, 
I perform better if I can have can constantly get along with everyone. So right, and that um, been very around you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I just feel so blessed to have such amazing teammates over the years. Now, there were some injuries involved shortly after, correct? And mm -hmm. then it was a huge competition for this last Olympic Games. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of walk us through what what happened there, and uh, and kind of the uh, I guess twilight of your bobsled career. Yeah. So post post uh, twenty eighteen, I definitely decided. You know, when you miss a medal by zero point seven seconds over four heats, uh, that that's in the mix. You know, that means on average I was just less than two tenths um, behind on the number one or behind on each heat. So that that means that you're in it like you're you're in it and we were right there and i actually felt our performance at the olympics we drove i drove great like i i don't really know where we lost the time because there there i made one big mistake on my first heat and that was it other than that i thought we were absolutely dialed in and it was it was a great experience so um we we uh i went for another cycle and the next year we we're actually hosting the uh, uh world championships in whistler which is a big deal and five weeks before the Whistler uh, World Champs, I tore my calf, a seven centimeter tear in my calf. Wow. Uh, I was in a boot for all, all five weeks leading into it, was sitting in the sled, still taking runs. Um, but obviously, I took it off to, to race in World Championships, but we were so far behind on the push. And no, that was with Cynthia, and it was no fault of her. She was ready to go. She was in great shape, but it was just I had been in a boot for five weeks and not sprinting at my highest level and just uh so really disappointing finish to the world championships um and then that following summer I I, I thought I was fine I started training and I developed this uh, debilitating tendonitis and it just turned out that 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 tear um when I got it uh MRI'd even it was it was seven months later it had gone from seven centimeters to four, like it never really healed properly. Oh, um, and it healed kind yeah. of, uh, also not, um, in line, like it almost healed at an angle, which was why I was getting this pull throughout my, my lower limbs and, and I couldn't sprint. Um, right. so I ended up, I mean, that injury ended up costing me when all of a sudden had done $8,000 between the PRP <laughs> injections and the MRI and everything. Um, and I, I was presented with an opportunity literally a week before season started and I had no intentions of taking the season off, but, um, I was recommended by our high performance director to take the season off fully heal because if I wasn't perfect for the year after I was, my spot was in jeopardy. And just because no one was ready to take my spot that year, um, didn't mean in the future it wouldn't set me back. So I took the year off to, to rehab. Um, and that's when the pandemic hit. So that year off actually oh, no. turned into, um, yeah, like had I known, <laughs> um, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't have. Um, but yeah, that, that turned into, uh, it turned into 22 months or 20 months, excuse me, between international competitions when all was said and done because we missed the first half of the 21 season. So, um, yeah, it, it, it set me back and then I never really got a chance to fight back and then go ahead and blame the pandemic, if you will, or poor management and of options. But we were supposed to have a selection race that I was supposed to be eligible for that never happened. 
um, in it our never happened. we got it never happened. We did not have in an Olympic year. We did not have a selection race. So yeah, in an Olympic that. year, it was it was so disheartening because I saw it all happening. Like I saw it from the very beginning. And had I known that, like in the March prior, I would have retired because it was very clear to me that I was being phased out. Um, even though I showed up that Olympic year in the best shape I had been, I was faster than I had been in the 28, in the, in the 17, 18 season by four hundredths. Um, my sprint times were better. I was literally like underweight than I needed to be, which was a big deal for me because I'd always kind of struggled being a little bit too heavy. Um, I'm definitely one of the tallest girls on the team too. So that kind of take that with a grain of salt. Um, but, uh, I was just like, I had put the work in, I had grinded so hard to get back into the best shape I could be in. And I never got the opportunity to fight for a spot. And that was the most disheartening. Um, I thought right after our push championships that, so pilots ended up being selected based on, on push rank. And I lost that by three hundredths of a second. So piloting the sled is, is obviously a big deal. Like it's, to win a bobsled race, you need the equipment, but you need a push and you need to drive. And yes. our pilots who drive never got any evaluation on driving. Um, it was solely based on seriously. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So I thought I, I thought I was retiring and then they told me, you know, we need you to go compete on, you won't be on. So we had three girls qualify for, we only are allowed three girls on the world cup circuit. Um, and being in a, a, you know, a pandemic, they were like, we need you to kind of be our backup plan. So I went on tour and still qualified for the Olympics from the B circuit. Um, okay. I, I did, it was the first year of, of full, full season monobob. I competed in eight races. I won eight gold medals and I won by an average of a minute and a half or on, sorry, a second and a half, not a minute and a half, a second and a half <laughs> in each race, which is like, again, we're talking about. I lost a medal over four heats um, by 0.7 seconds at the last Olympics. And in these races, I was winning a two heat race by a second and a half, which is huge, right? Like it's, um, and I, and I never even got a call from a coach, from a director, nothing. Um, The only call I got was in, was in January and it said, you have to keep training until those guys land in Beijing and have three negative tests. Because if somebody gets pulled and goes into quarantine jail, then you're, then you might have to go. So, um, yeah, that was, it was a tough pill to swallow. I had, you know, I got, it was great to have a year where I got to finish kind of as a, a player coach because I was working really well with our development level athletes and, trying to help them and instill some knowledge on them with everything I was doing, which I think was a really important, um, it was just important to me to make sure that they were getting that kind of information that I could provide being so experienced on the North American tracks. And then, um, I get to go at a legend because I don't think anyone's going to win eight races in a row ever again. So (laughs) yeah, I think you're right on that. Uh, absolutely. Now you had uh, quoted it that you knew it was time to retire after you no longer have the energy for the politics in your sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did this now lead you into your business career now and that transition again out of sports? Uh, because uh, you 
obviously kind of had this end goal with with your sports and were developing the business and the marketing side as you went through like uh for anyone listening make sure you check out the your facebook instagram page because it's, <laughs> it's amazing what you were doing as you were going through and then you landed uh sales position for the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League and Western Hockey League. What's kind of been this transition from this? Yeah. Uh, so my experience as an athlete, like, as I said, I bought my own bobsled. It was $91,000. I didn't do it with my own money. I did it through sponsorship. <laughs> and um, that was one thing I, I kind of taught myself as I was going. I have a science background. I thought I was going the the medicine slash maybe Cairo slash maybe physio route. Um, and mm-hmm. till I got into this sport, which kind of opens, it's interesting how it kind of exposes some of the other skills that naturally just develop. And, um, so my experience in, in, in dealing with sponsorship, I was quite successful just being a, a low level amateur female athlete who's on TV eight times, eight times a winter on a Saturday morning. <laughs> um, so I, I, yeah, and my passion is, is always going to be sport. And, and actually, if you follow my Instagram as well, you know, I'm a, a massive hockey fan growing up in a hockey family as well. Um, so it was just like such a natural fit when this position, I actually had two different people recommend me for it. And it was just a no brainer for me that it was just, this is, this matches my skill set, the skill set that I actually went back and I mentioned before, I got a certificate in business, a post-grad certificate, um, where I started to kind of put a piece of paper that said that I already knew what I was doing because I taught myself everything. I remember the first year when I tried to uh, develop a business proposal uh, for companies, I sat on the computer for two weeks and researched how to build a business proposal or how to pitch a company. Like I, I, I learned it all myself wow. and I developed kind of my own strategy and, and I, I like my strategy and it, it true, it's proven to be, um, pretty effective. I mean, let's hope so. I'm, I'm five weeks into my new position now and, um, haven't closed anything yet, but I'm, I'm hopefully really close. I am hoping for an email today. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, this is a position that I can see myself for, for, for my future. Like I, this is, it's interesting. I've never, every job I've ever had being an athlete, I know it's always just kind of like a job that's going to get me by until I, I have to quit again before I have to go back on tour or I've never been in a position where I'm like, this is what I'm going to do for my future, except for, you know, that first time I went down the bobsled track and I'm like, I'm doing this for a while. Like this isn't just (laughs) something I'm going to do in the meantime. Um, so yeah, it's, it was a, it was a natural fit for me and, and I, I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy the work. Um, and it's pretty special for me that I get to stay involved with sport. Definitely. Now you're working at sport, you're a former Olympic athlete. And during this time, you've done a lot of work though, promoting sport and your passions really come across this. Uh, speak to some of the, the charities that you've worked with and, and your goal and your, and the work you've been doing with youth sport and, and primarily with, with women as well. Yeah. Um, I, where to start? (laughs) I I think from, from the very beginning, I, I, I knew that I grew up very privileged. Um, and sport has just been given me so many incredible opportunities and it's, it's shaped my life and created me to be the person who I am today. Um, all the lessons I've learned from, from leadership and, and teamwork and, and hard work and, and, uh, 
uh, resiliency. Um, you really start to appreciate them when you're older. Like it's, it's uh, now that I'm in my thirties and I look at some of my friends who, who maybe weren't athletes and some of the qualities I have, um, that I'm able to kind of mitigate better in, in, I, I just feel like I've adopted this. I'm addicted to high performance. So I, it's something that I've always adopted and I learned every single lesson, everything that I, I have in my life, all the travel that I've done has been because of sport. And so, um, I think that all women need to understand what opportunities are available to them. And it's really important for me to kind of give back and make sure that I can share on some of those opportunities and maybe open some people's eyes to what's available to them. Um, so starting with, uh, I mean, I had so many positive role models in my life and in for me to re- realize kind of as I moved away that there's this whole other world about there who kids who don't have any positive role models in their life and Um, so starting with, uh, classroom champions, which was an organization that was started by a former Olympic bobsledder, uh, gold medalist who he's American, but he lives in Calgary, um, and a dear friend of mine. So it's an organization where we get paired up with on average, I'd say with six classrooms, um, throughout the, the year. And I work with those six classrooms for the entirety of the year, the eight months. I have Skyped in from Austria when it's 10 p.m. my time because it's two o'clock in the afternoon for the kids and they share with me and we walk through a curriculum of of goal setting and perseverance and dealing with big emotions. And they're all um, learning moments that I can give them real life examples. And they're often examples that happened like <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> um, so true to real time. Um, and that the kids can learn from, and I know they just benefit from it so much. The feedback from the teachers is always so incredible. Um, so that was a pretty, I was involved with them for five years. And now that I'm retiring as an athlete, I'll be retiring as an athlete mentor, um, but still plan to, to be involved with the charity, uh, in all their corporate events, uh, here in Calgary. Um, kids sport is something that is also near and dear to my heart because they have such local chapters, both in Edmonton and in Calgary. So, in Calgary, we have a pretty incredible group of athlete mentors that are athletes from every discipline from across the city, um, all different ages too. Um, some are still active, some like long time retired. And uh, for us, that's that's going and doing all these charity events that are fundraisers and and being the, the local celebrity, if you call it. And um, <laughs> just giving these kind of cool experiences to people who are, are giving their, cause as an athlete, I don't have a lot of money to give, but I do have time. <laughs> so, um, if I can go out there and, and be the difference maker of uh, that's going to make someone who's in a position to give and, and make a difference and, uh, pay those, those fees to, for lesser, lesser fortunate families who don't have the money to pay for registration fees to get their kid involved in sport. Um, that's just so important to me. So those are the two big ones that I am heavily involved with for sure. Nice. Now, as this multi-sport athlete and crossover athlete, what do you think of the specialization in sports and especially at this youth level where there's a lot of kids who, who can't afford kind of getting into different programs or the the academies to, to develop them to that level. What's kind of your, your thoughts around that then with, with this perspective? Well, I, my, my thought is I'm a, I'm very pro being a multi-sport. I think that you can't develop your body in every way, shape or form, just doing the same repetitive movements over and over again. Um, 
do I think academies are, are a pretty innovative way that um, train, I think the science that goes into them is actually really good for athletes because they do kind of work on that. They're getting kids in the gym earlier. So you're actually yes. getting kind of this, this hand-eye development in other ways or whatever it may be. But for me, I did basically what an academy would do playing by playing multiple sports. So I'd encourage um, families that maybe can't afford to, to be multi-sport is, is to, to reach out to organizations like kids sport. And, and if your kid wants to play, let them play. And I can't speak to this enough that I wouldn't be a bobsled Olympian if it wasn't for the, the, the dance I did as a child or the skating I did, or the, you know, the, the snowboarding on the weekends, whatever it was on top of all the other, um, team sports that I played at a, at a high level, I wouldn't have been this all around athlete that it, and had the career that I did. And specialization, we just see it so many times when you specialize too soon. And my, my fiance actually is a, is a skill development coach in hockey. And okay. we see these kids come in and, and their parents want them on the ice like three times a week in the summer when, and he's like, they're just so tired and they're getting like, you're going to hate it. Like with anything, you're going to hate it. And I think that's why for me playing so many different sports helped with that burnout because it was something else to look forward to. It wasn't the same drills, the same, um, motions. It was, it was an, a new challenge in a different horizontal plane, a new challenge for my ner- nervous system. Um, whether it be how my cardio, like soccer, where you just have to have slow steady state the whole time versus basketball, where you're up and down the court with multiple stops along the way. Versus track and field where you have to be, you know, kind of at the highest peak for 10 seconds. Well, for right, me, it was yes. 12. But like, let's be honest, there wasn't 10 seconds. Um, uh, running running a 100-meter sprint. So it's it's just so important that you're getting this all-around development from all of your energy systems, from your, your muscle capacity, uh, training both up and bo- lower body and and specialization, I just think, is a way. It's it's the the path to burnout. It's not the path to being great, greatly successful. Now you're you're mentioning burnout, and I've got kind of two two points I want to hit on that and see see your opinion on it. Uh, the first one is that: Do you think this burnout potential burnout will lead to more people realizing that they can transfer their skills then into another sport, like bobsled? Not many people start out as a young bobsledder. It's usually no. something they pick up later. Um, do you think that's kind of a possibility then? A hundred percent. There's transferability and everything. So to be a good bobsled athlete, like we spend, um, we have brakemen that are incredible bobsled athletes that only have bobsled for a couple of weeks. And it's just because of their their skills that they've developed. So for us, it's mostly about, um, your, your off season training and strength and power and finding a, a fine dynamic because I, I've been through times where I was incredibly strong, but those were usually the times where I lost my speed because I got too big or I just like that. There's that kind of finding that happy medium and being able to train for what's best, not just for your sport, but for your body type as well. I think it's very important and just understanding how everybody's body is different and there's no, a cookie cutter method that's going to work for every single person. Um, right. And so for me, that's what's the most important, I think, is is individualization of, of uh, periodization for, for athletes. That is huge, massive. And I'm, I'm so happy you, you mentioned that one. 
That was the burnout aspect. And to move away from kind of the, the age group where we put a lot of focus on being, being children and getting them active, which is so important. But now that you're retired and you've kind of had that, that uh, almost burnout sensation with, with, the, with the bobsled, how mm-hmm. do you still enjoy sport? Um, are you still active? And what would you say to other people that kind of just stop playing a sport or, or that activity after, after their whatever and has I caused think- them to do that? <laughs> So, I, I mean, this goes back to me learning from my mistakes, and I, I apply this to all aspects of my life. But, um, yeah, f- f- finishing my, my university career and in, in me not even stepping foot in a gym for 14 months, I think I went to yoga like a handful of times. Um, that's not sustainable to the lifestyle that I want to live as a high performer. And, and now I've kind of I've been able to separate the high performance piece from, from just being an athlete and it applies to all aspects of life. And I know for me, um, when I'm fit, I, I have more energy. I, uh, sleep better. I, there's a lot of things that go into it. I've had to really learn for me. It's never, I don't have a problem with being active. I, if anything, I'm probably more active and I, I constantly have to focus on recovering because I, I'm the person, the kind of person who's always pushing too hard. Like I, I hire a trainer not to push me, but to slow me down. Um, so yeah, post-sport, I, I think I, I had a little bit of fun with it. I wanted to try group fitness classes. So I was going to, I think I did like seven different studios and was trying different types of workout. And ultimately I kind of decided settled on F45 for now until I get bored and then I'll move on to the next one. Um, because I like it because it's incorporating, you know, uh, uh, compound lifts, that are definitely not in the 300 pound range anymore, which is nice. My body likes that a lot better. Uh, still getting my heart rate going and I actually hate cardio, but I know I need to do it. So, um, (laughs) I will always be an active person. I have a dog. We, I walk, you know, my, my baseline has to be 10,000 steps a day. Um, and, uh, I play, I still like to play. I have a beach volleyball court right outside my door right here that if anyone calls me over, I'm over there playing. Um, I play on a slow pitch team once a week, uh, often have to sub for a couple other teams. So I, I'm just out there. I, I golf, um, as well. I, I just, I love to play anything and everything. So a sport will always be a huge part of my life. So for me, I don't really have a problem with staying active. <laughs> Nice. Now, are there any kind of last uh, points or thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, I think this will be an interesting one that you might like is in just because we haven't really touched too much on the brain part of it. But how do you feel about so that year I was talking about where I was going down the track six, seven or eight times. um, I would come home from a day at the track with a nervous system that would be so shocked that um, I wouldn't be able to form sentences. I yes. would say, like, my roommates would be like, hey, how was your day? And be like, my day was how? Like, I, I couldn't, like, I would fumble my my words. Um, how much damage do you think I did to myself then? <laughs> <laughs> Everything in, well, athletics and in life is basically finding that happy medium. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Sports builds the brain. All these activities build that time and coordination between different circuits in the brain. And then, of course, 
there's so many things we do as athletes that take away from it. We overtrain mm -hmm. and yeah, the nervous system is one of those things that, uh, no pain, no gain doesn't work with the brain and nervous system like it does with a muscle. And mm -hmm. the reason is once you burn through what it can metabolically handle, then you start to have that detrimental effect to it compared to a muscle where you want to break it down so it rebuilds stronger. The nervous mm -hmm. system, yeah, we want to just do enough stimulated basically to that point before it fatigues and let it recover. So, so much of it is that repetition, as you mentioned earlier, that doing it over and over again is going to build the nervous system and these skills quicker and faster than trying to do too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be the focus of a lot of sports and the sports science behind things. And not just that, the science for career and professionals as well is to realize when you're close to that basically neuro fatigue, brain fatigue before going over it, recovering. And we're going to be basically able to last longer and be more efficient with it. And uh, yeah, the biggest thing, especially when we talk about youth sports is that sports movement, these reactions is what builds the nervous system. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Now, how do people find you? Uh, what are what are the ways they can contact you or find out more about what you're doing now? Yeah, I think uh, my my tried and true is just Instagram. Um, I don't really stay on top of everything else much anymore. So, <laughs> and and I respond to all my messages on Instagram. So uh, I'm at Riz R I Z Z Bobslay B O B S L E I G H. Um, and I haven't been nearly as active on there as I used to be, it used to be free, but uh, they don't let me film at my current gym and usually I would film all my workouts. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still on there. Uh, now you can come to me for funny, funny content uh, about hockey mostly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. once again, I appreciate you being on the show and sharing all this experience. Uh, you had mentioned you didn't have much money to give back to any youth sports, but your experience has been priceless and is a message to everybody who's listening. And I, I just have to applaud you for sharing everything you did today. And for everybody else tuning in, tune into the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Have a great day. Thank you.